One of the New Testament's favorite expressions is a two-word phrase, one another. Excluding the Gospels, the New Testament mentions 58 different one another commands. For example, accept one another, bear one another's burdens, build up one another, comfort one another, care for one another, forgive one another, honor one another, be kind to one another, be hospitable to one another, love one another, pray for one another, serve one another, submit to one another. The list goes on and on. These commands highlight the character of the relationships that should exist within the body of Christ. All believers have a responsibility to one another. Well, these last two chapters of Romans now revolve around four more one another commands. In chapter 15, verse 5, we find be like-minded toward one another. 15, verse 7, receive one another. 15, verse 14, admonish one another. And then in chapter 16, verse 16, we'll find greet one another. Romans chapters 15 and 16 focus on a Christian's duty toward one another. Verse 1 picks up where chapter 14 leaves off. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Two men were out in the woods when this giant, angry, grizzly bear jumped out of the bushes. Immediately, one of the men, he reached in his backpack and he pulled out his running shoes. His companion told him, he said, you're not going to try and outrun a grizzly bear. You know full-grown grizzly bears, they can run 30, 35 miles per hour. While he was tying up his shoes, the guy turned and he said to his friend, he said, don't worry, I don't have to outrun the grizzly bear. All I have to do is outrun you. <laughs> well, sadly, this is the attitude of many Christians. Rather than bear with the weaker brother, the weaker Christian, we, we want to run out ahead. We want to leave them behind to be eaten by the spiritual grizzlies. Our goal should be to love one another, not just save our own skin. You remember the previous chapter, chapter 14, warns us about using our freedom in Christ in a way that might cause our brother to stumble. Maybe you can enjoy a single glass of wine with your meal, but a fellow Christian who struggles with alcohol, they see you, and they assume, assume that if it's okay for you, then it's okay for them. What you might do is cause a brother to stumble. Paul says this shouldn't be. We need to bear with the weaker brother or the new Christian. I mean, like taking a walk in the park with a toddler. You don't expect the child to walk at your pace. No, the adult, the mature one, he slows down so that he can match up and get in sync with the pace of the younger person. And the same is true for mature Christians. Our goal isn't to flaunt our freedom or try to prove our point. We should love and help the younger Christians grow. He tells us, verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And here Paul quotes Psalm 69, verse 9. 
It was a passage prophetic of Jesus. Jesus came to bear our burden. I mean, think about it. Do we need to go any further than Jesus for an example of someone who forfeited his freedoms and his rights and his privileges for the good of others? Of course we don't. Hey, we follow Jesus when we realize the impact we have on one another. He says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And when it comes to examples, Jesus is just the tip of the iceberg. A survey of the Old Testament provides numerous instances of people who are willing to forego their own freedoms and comfort for the sake of others. Think of the stories. Think of Noah. and He labored those many, many years to build an ark. Think of Joseph who endured prison for the sake of his brothers. Think of Moses who literally bore the burden of a nation. Think of Daniel and on and on we could go. All these men bypassed the easy road and chose to live their lives as an influence for God and for the good of other people. And their impact was worth the sacrifice. They stand out now as models to us. Here's a verse that encourages us to open up our Old Testament. He says, these things that were written before were there for our learning, for our benefit. You know, too many churches, they camp out in the New Testament. And the 39 books of the Old Testament become the lost continent of Scripture. Realize, 77% of your Bible, that's the percentage... 77% of all inspired scripture is the Old Testament. The stories and the pictures and the types and the principles we learn there are for our benefit. There's much a New Testament believer can learn and glean from Old Testament scripture. Paul says these things were written for our learning. And then in verse 5 he says, Now may the God of patience and comfort. And I love this name for God. Here here God calls himself the God of patience and comfort. You need to remember this name for God the next time you fail him and you worry he might have given up on you. Apparently, he wants to be known as the God of patience. This is good news for a knucklehead like me. For a slow learner who needs lots and lots of patience from God. Hey, this brings great comfort to me. How cool is this? My God, your God, is the God of patience. He says, and may God grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. Now here we have another one of the New Testament's one another commands. Be like-minded toward one another. The idea is to be in agreement. It's to be of the same mind. Now, in light of chapter 14, Paul talked about the gray matters. And there's some times when we need to just agree to disagree. In light of chapter 14, I'm sure that Paul isn't advocating perfect agreement on all the munitia of church life or every detail of doctrine. But is it possible for us to be of the same mind, to be like-minded when it comes to the big stuff? I think so. The Bible is God's Word. Jesus is God's Son. Grace through faith is God's only salvation. And the church is God's arms and legs to spread that salvation. I think we all should be in agreement on the big stuff. Remember the old adage? We mentioned it last week. In essentials unity, 
in non-essentials, let's give liberty, but in all things, charity. Notice, though, how it begins. In essentials, unity. There are some non-negotiable ideas that we need to hammer out and insist on unanimity. And here's why we should be like-minded. That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity is important because our praise packs a bigger punch when we share it to God corporately. It pleases God when we glorify Him together with one mind and with one mouth. When my kids were little, on rare occasion, they would come to me with a unified front. They would all be together. They're all in agreement. They've all got it together ahead of time. Zach was usually the spokesman. Dad, we've decided we all want to go to Brewster's tonight for ice cream. Yes, Dad, me too. Me too, Dad. Me wants ice cream. That was back. They didn't know it, but I was usually so weary of all their squabbling, and I was so excited that they could actually come together and agree on something, I was willing to give them whatever they asked. I think this is the offer behind Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 15, or Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, when he says, If two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I think the Father says, man, look at those guys. They've gotten like-minded over something. They've come together around a truth. I'm going to grant them their request. In praise and in prayer, it delights God when we come to Him in unanimity. He says, therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us. To the glory of God. Now here's another one another command. Receive one another. When you gave your life to Jesus, you remember? You remember that day? God received you with open arms, didn't he? When the prodigal son returned home, the father ran down the road to meet him. He threw his arms around him. He kissed him. He welcomed him home. He even killed the fatted calf. The father didn't hold his son at arm's length until he had proven himself. I mean, the prodigal son wasn't placed on probation. He wasn't bonded until his court date. He was given full membership immediately. He didn't have to wait 90 days for his benefits to kick in. And I mean, this is the way that we should treat the newcomers to the body of Christ. Either the new believers or the Newly backed believers or the just plain newcomers. We should receive them with open arms. Receive one another, Paul says. It's been said, the Christian church is the only society in the world in which membership is based on the qualification that the candidate is unworthy of membership. <laughs> We're a grace place. And grace that's earned isn't grace. The church is not some exclusive club. We're not a sorority that you pledge or a country club to which you apply or even a hospital that checks your insurance. We're Grady. (laughs) You know about Grady. They take in everybody at Grady. And likewise, we take in everybody here at Calvary 316. He goes on. He says, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. 
to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy as it is written. And here he quotes Psalm 18 verse 49. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Now in chapter 11, Paul talked about his plan for both Jews and Gentiles, or God's plan for both Jews and Gentiles. It's his will for both to be saved. Jesus is an equal opportunity Savior. And here he quotes the psalm where it says that even the Gentiles will sing praise to his name. And then he reels off three more Old Testament scriptures to prove his point. And again he says, now he quotes Deuteronomy 32 verse 49, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Gentiles will join with the Jews in rejoicing over God's goodness. And then again, here he quotes Psalm 117 verse 1, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. I I love this psalm, Psalm 117. I love it for a couple of reasons. You know, Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the Bible. Did you know that? It's ironic, though, that the shortest chapter covers the most ground. It literally wraps around the whole world. It predicts the spread of the gospel to the Gentile nations all over the globe. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Isn't that great? Well, the other reason I like Psalm 117 is this was my dad's favorite song. You know, every night before we went to bed as kids, my mom would read us a chapter of the Bible. Except on Wednesday nights. Mom would stay at church for choir practice. And so the chapter reading job became dad's on Wednesday nights. And he would always read us the same chapter. Psalm 117. Probably because it was the shortest one in all the Bible. But he'd always read it. And I can still remember him coming in. He'd open his Bible and he'd say, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all you people. For his merciful kindness is great toward us. And truth the Lord endures forever. Praise ye the Lord. Good night, boys. And he put us to bed. <laughs> Did you realize? It was probably a decade later before I realized good night, boys, was not actually part of the text. <laughs> hey, but at least my dad was there. At least he was trying. And then Paul has a third quote. He says, and again, Isaiah says, and now he quotes Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 10. He says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. This root of Jesse was a prophetic name for Jesus. Why? Because our Lord Jesus rose from Jesse's family tree through Jesse's son, whose name was King David. And Isaiah here says that a root of Jesse, or Jesus, will reign over both Jew and Gentile alike. Once again, Paul is predicting the joining together of Jew and Gentile through the salvation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. Now may the God of hope, and here's another great name for God. He's the God of patience, but what else? He's the God of hope. Did you know you serve the God of hope? You might have been out of hope when you walked in here. Your situation might have seemed hopeless when you came in here. But you need to be reminded, you're not out of hope and you're not hopeless. You serve the God of hope. Remember the old song, I've got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. You remember that song? Well, there was a second stanza. 
I got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. But then there were some other stanzas, and some of them were quite fun stanzas. Here was my favorite. I've got that happy hope that heckles heathens down in my heart. (laughs) That happy hope that heckles heathens. And did you know that's what you have too? For our God is a God of hope. And this is what the heathen, this is what the world doesn't understand. This is what vexes them and frustrates them. The world today lacks hope. Our problems today seem insurmountable. Folks have no hope. In contrast, we serve the God of hope. Thus, our situation is never hopeless. He says, And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love this. The Holy Spirit is He who conveys God's hope to our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one who blows fresh wind into sagging sails. He's the one who brings hope to bear. He makes it real in our hearts. He says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. And here's a third one another command. We've read, be like-minded toward one another, receive one another, and now admonish one another. This word admonish, it means to remind or to caution. In other words, when you see a brother or sister stray from the Lord, it's your business, it's your business now to say something, to send out a warning, to show that person that you care. Notice verse 15. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you. Paul had admonished the Romans. You see, Paul knew the Romans were capable of admonishing each other. But there were a few points on which he chose to clarify. Aren't we thankful that Paul took seriously his own command to admonish one another? If he hadn't, most of the New Testament wouldn't have been written. Paul cared for the churches. And he was not afraid of confrontation. And so when he saw an individual or a group going sideways in their faith, he wasn't afraid to point it out. He was willing to admonish them. And so should we be willing to admonish each other. Real love is willing to admonish a brother. Well, Paul finishes his thought in verse 16. He says, Because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You remember Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. They were his mission field. And he felt a responsibility to God to see to it that they were not only saved, but that they walked in godliness. He continues, Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. And this was a wise policy. Paul is saying that he doesn't want to speak about subjects that he hasn't experienced personally. His preaching didn't go far beyond his practice. And I think the same should be true of us. Certainly truth is truth. But it's hard to speak convincingly of a truth that you've never tasted and known firsthand. Paul is saying the things I've I've spoken to you 
are the things that I know firsthand and have experienced. In fact, Paul's spiritual resume was full of supernatural things. He had a wide swath of spiritual experience. He writes, For in mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Oh, Paul preached. He preached the gospel of grace. But his ministry was also accompanied by supernatural displays of the Holy Spirit. He lived a deep life with God, and it resulted in incredible power from God. Now notice here, Paul has been called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And here, in essence, he files his final report. He says, I've done so from Jerusalem to Elycrium. That's 1,400 mile distance. From Mount Calvary, where the earth quaked and the temple veil was torn in two, all the way to Elycrium, north of Macedonia, where an earthquake rocked a Philippian jail. All the way across the breadth of the empire now, countless lives lay in Paul's wake, radically transformed and redeemed by the gospel of Jesus. He had been faithful to his calling. He had preached the gospel. You know, in his heyday, Roger Clemens was one of the most feared fastball pitchers in baseball. But because Clemens played for most of his career in the minor league that has the designated hitter, he never came to bat, except in the All-Star game. The story goes that in Clemens' first pro at bat, he had to face another fastballer, a guy named Dwight Gooden. The first pitch was a sizzler. And Clemens stepped back. Roger's eyes were as big as saucers. He turned to the catcher and he asked, Is that what my pitches look like? And the answer, of course, was yep. From that day forward, though, Roger Clemens pitched with more boldness, more authority. You see, he had forgotten how overpowering a good fastball could be. You see, I think the same problem holds true to us. We often take for granted the gospel. We forget how overpowering it is. Paul reflected on his own ministry, all that he had proclaimed in the gospel, in power and in truth. And as a result, thousands of lives had been changed. Boy, the gospel has proved to be an overwhelming, overpowering force. And it still is the same way today. May we never forget it. Verse 20. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel. Not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah chapter 52, To whom he has not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. Paul's goal was to reach the unreached. Was to till and plow up the fallow grounds. To target new areas for ministry. Even after a successful life of ministry, Paul was still a pioneer at heart. He still wanted to go where there was no preaching, where there was no gospel presence. He wanted to go even to the unreached areas. That's why we moved here to Winder. To plant a church here in an area where, relatively speaking, there are very few churches. Rather than plowing another man's foundation, our goal has been to reach people who aren't being reached. And I hope we remain a rescue mission, an emergency room, not a community center for fun and games, but a hospital 
for people who are hurting and who need help. You know, according to one poll, 34% of all Americans, even today, claim to have never accept, claim to have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's 34%. That means that 66% have not. That's an incredible amount of people. Rather than just settling in and focusing on ourselves, we need to keep reaching out to those who are lost. Verse 22 tells us, For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts. And and Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome, remember, from the port city of Corinth. Now, though, he was on the move. He says, I no longer have a place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Well, apparently Paul has his eyes set on Spain. He hopes to voyage there. And he hopes that en route he can lay over in Rome where he can visit this church. Whether or not he ever made it to Rome, uh, at least to visit the church, we don't know. We do know that he was executed in Rome all around the year 65 A.D. He says, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. This was his immediate destination. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Paul had an offering that he had taken among the churches of the Gentiles to deliver to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. He explains, it pleased them indeed, and they are our debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. You see, the Gentiles of Europe realized that they were standing on the shoulders of the Hebrews. The Jews had been chosen by God. They had given us the scriptures. They are the custodians of the Bible. The Jews were the earthly family of Jesus. There's much that we Gentiles owe the Jews. These believers understood the principle that you can pay a spiritual debt with an offering. In other words, we should support financially those who minister to us spiritually, whether that's a church in need or a pastor. If someone invests in you spiritually, then you should bless them by investing in them financially. That's what's happening here. The church in Jerusalem had funded the missionaries who had taken the gospel to the Gentiles. Now it was the Gentiles' turn to return the favor. They're taking up an offering and going back to Jerusalem. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. He's saying, when you pray, will you pray for me? He pleads for their prayers. And pray that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that I may come to you with joy by the will of God, and may be refreshed together with you. Notice Paul says, I have three prayer requests. Protection from my enemies, the completion of my mission, and rejuvenation with my friends. And then in verse 33, he closes. Now the God of peace 
be with you all. Amen. Now, Romans 16 contains Paul's personal correspondence. He's extending his greetings to individuals that he knows. And it proves that Paul was not only a great soul winner, he was also a friend maker. In chapter 16, he mentions 35 different names. And remember, Paul had never been to Rome personally, and yet he knew many of the members of the church there. You know, it's amazing to me that while Paul wasn't busy winning the world for Jesus and writing most of the New Testament, he still had time to keep up with his friends. Obviously, Paul was a people person, as every Christian should be. He loved the people that Jesus died to save. Hey, when you get too hurried or when you feel too important for personal relationships, that's when your priorities are out of kilter. And notice the first person that Paul mentions is a gal. Her name is Phoebe. He says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. Now, the Greek word translated servant can be translated deacon. And this is one reason why I believe that women served as deacons in the early church. Now remember, deacon was not a position of authority. It was a position of service. The deacons were the designated doers in the church. And there were women who served in this capacity. Here, obviously, Phoebe was one. The Revised Standard Version renders verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church in Sincrea. Needs will pop up in church life that necessitate a feminine touch. And that's why God has appointed the deaconesses. Paul says of Phoebe, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Phoebe was the messenger who delivered Paul's letter to the Romans. Imagine this great epistle, the doctrine that we've studied in the book of Romans, the foundational truths of the Christian life were kept under her skirt on that ship from Sincrea all the way to Rome. Phoebe carried such an important document and delivered it to the church. She had sailed from Sincrea, the port of Corinth, and had arrived in Rome. Paul tells the Romans to receive her, to respect her, to assist her in whatever she asks. Verse 3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now, Aquila and Priscilla, they appear seven times in the New Testament. And they always appear as a team. Paul met them in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Like Paul, they were tent makers by trade. And everywhere they lived, they ended up with a church meeting in their home, including here at Rome. In other words, they opened up their hearts to the Lord, then they opened up their home for the Lord, their hearts and their home. This was a couple able to beautifully blend and merge marriage and ministry. They offered their hearts and home to Jesus, but they also put their head on the chopping block, for Paul says of them, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Oh, I wish we knew the specific circumstances that he's talking about. 
where they risked their necks for Paul's sake. One thing's for sure, Aquila and Priscilla were not just fair-weathered friends. Somewhere along the line, they encountered danger to protect Paul. They were faithful friends indeed. And then he says, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Remember, the church met in halls and homes for the first 300 years of its existence. By the way, its most expansive period. There were no designated church buildings, and yet the church exploded and grew. He says, greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Evidently, Eponidas was Paul's first convert in the region of Achaia, or there in southern Greece. Others would certainly follow, but Paul always remembered the first. Then he says, greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Now here was an older couple, obviously, Andronicus and Junia. They were Jews, they were Paul's countrymen, and they had been arrested for Jesus' sake. In fact, they had been Christians even longer than Paul. Although we know little about them, they were well known and appreciated by the apostles at the time. Verse 8 continues to list Paul's friends there in Rome. And notice how he addresses them with terms of endearment. He says, greet Ampelias, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. This word approved means tried and tested. I like that. Apelles had been through the fire and yet had been found faithful. And then he says, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great? This was the Herod who murdered the infants in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. He had a grandson. Guess what his name was? Aristobulus. And we know from history that he actually moved and lived in Rome. What an irony this would be if it was the same Aristobulus. Imagine the brutal Herod's own grandson now following the babe from Bethlehem. Isn't that an amazing Christmas story? You know, the fact that Paul here addresses Aristobulus' household and not him per se seems to depict that this, this could have been an unbelieving husband living with believing wife, a believing wife and kids. He says, greet those of the household of Aristobulus. Aristobulus, you're not one of us, but your household is. This could have been the situation. Imagine a whole family had been saved, but the husband was dragging his feet. If you know such a family, pray for your Aristobulus. If you live in such a family, pray for your Aristobulus. Verse 11, greet Herodian, my countryman, probably a fellow Jew. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. This is a wonderful verse. Check this out. These are both female names. Tryphena means dainty. And Tryphosa means delicate. The word labored means to toil to the point of exhaustion. So let's put it all together. 
dainty and delicate, rolled up their shirt sleeves and worked hard for the Lord. (laughs) These prissy names belong to some rugged workers. Then he says, greet the beloved Persis who labored much in the Lord. This is also a feminine name. The church in Rome sounds like Calvary Chapel. It's full of ladies who are diligent servants of the Lord. Ladies who sure weren't allergic to work. We got some of those in our church too. Verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Paul was so close to Rufus's mom that he considered her his own. Mark 15 verse 21 tells us the man who helped Jesus carry the cross, Simon of Cyrene, had a son named Rufus. Many folks believe this is the same guy. Could it be Simon's seemingly random selection from the crowd? His experience with Jesus there on Mount Calvary? led to both his and his family's conversion to Christianity. He returned to Cyrene. He led his wife and sons to Christ. And then they later moved to Rome. And now Paul greets him. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Potrobus, Hermas, and the brethren who are with them. Here's a group of men now. And all that's listed of them is their name. Yet imagine seeing, imagine seeing your name in Paul's letter. Can you believe it? What would your reaction be? And remember Ed. And remember Carolyn. And, and remember Scott. Can you imagine that? Well, you would say, wow, he remembered me. Isn't this how Jesus treats us? You remember John 10, verse 3, he calls his own sheep by name. Jesus knows each one of us. He knows us by name. You know, visit the Old Natural Bridge in Virginia, and you'll see hundreds of names carved into the boulders around the bridge. Near the top of the boulders, you'll see an interesting name. Guess whose name it is? George Washington. George Washington. Apparently, even the father of our own country couldn't resist a little personal graffiti. (laughs) He had to take his knife out and carve his name in the rock. Hey, we all love to speak and hear and write our names, don't we? We all love that. I have a friend who, who works with old folks. And he tells me the secret to relating to old folks is to call them by their first name. He says, few people do that to them anymore. Everyone is younger and they refer to them as Mr. or Mrs. And these people love to hear their name. Remember, Paul is writing the Bible no less. He's got limited scroll space. And he's got strategic subjects to cover. And yet he leaves room toward the end to mention these saints by name. It's important. It adds credibility to the old saying, God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. That statement is is really true. And then he writes, verse 15, Greet Philogus, or Philogus, yeah, Philogus, how do you say it? Philologus, Philogus, Philogus, Philogus. Anyway, 
You know what the name means? You know what the name means? Philo, brotherly love. Philadelphia, brotherly love. Logos, the word. Lover of the word. Philogos. Hey, Zach, Jess, any other expected moms out there and dads, here's a great name for your baby. You got to work on pronouncing it, but once you get it down, Philogos, lover of the word. Isn't that a great name? Reminds me of the little boy who wanted a Bible just like his mom. Just like his mom. He was asked, well, why don't you want a Bible like dad's? Well, mom's Bible is more interesting. She's always reading hers. Dad never picks his up. Ouch. Hey, let's all be deserving of the name Philogos, lover of the word. He says, greet Philogus and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Here's one more, one another command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And notice the operative word here, holy. Make sure it's a holy kiss versus a lustful or a sneaky or an unholy kiss. You know, actually, in that culture, a kiss was a common form of greeting, like our handshake. And Paul is, in essence, saying, greet each other with a holy handshake. Express your, express your welcome to the people around you. And then he says, the churches of Christ greet you. Obviously, it delighted all the believers all around the world to know that there was a church in the very heart of the empire all the churches wanted to send their greetings through Paul to the church at Rome. And then verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. A Sunday school teacher once asked her kids to define the term false doctrine. One little girl answered, well, it's when the doctor gives the wrong stuff to people who are sick. Well, that's both false doctrine and false doctrine. Giving the wrong stuff to people who are sick. We need to guard against both false doctoring and false doctrine. And understand how we're to do so. Paul here instructs us to note those who stir up conflict and strife. Note those. That, that involves identification. I mean, you can't avoid divisive and offensive people unless we mark them and point them out to others. And this becomes one of the more unpleasant and sensitive responsibilities of church leadership. You know, pointing out, naming names, noting those who are divisive and who are troublemakers and who teach false things. Verse 18. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. In other words, they're only out for themselves. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Now, unfortunately, a deceiver and a divider doesn't wear a sandwich board around his neck, identifying himself as a bad guy. Oh, no. He's a smooth talker. He can pull the wool over your eyes. You know, a man of God, sincerely following the Lord, he speaks what God once said 
Whereas a religious leader only out for himself, he tells folks what they want to hear. And there's a difference. And it's because of his flattery that the troublemaker can develop a following. That's why he can't be tolerated. Paul says, don't even give him a toehold, avoid him. He'll deceive simple minds and he'll manipulate gullible hearts. That's why we need to ID him and then avoid him. Verse 19, for your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Let's be experts in what is good and let's be naive to what is evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. In other words, rest assured you're on the winning team. That's what he's saying. Paul mentions here the ancient promise of Genesis 3 verse 15. On the cross, the serpent would bruise Messiah's heel, but Jesus would crush his head and strip him of his authority. And at the end of the age, we'll return to earth with Jesus and we too will crush the Antichrist and his armies. We'll share in Christ's ultimate triumph over Satan. Verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. These were Paul's colleagues with him there in Corinth. Verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Now, don't get confused here. Tertius is not some mystery writer popping up here at the end. He was Paul's stenographer. You see, it was Paul's custom to dictate his letters. Someone else would write them as Paul dictated them. And then at the end, Paul would then take up the pen and he would write his name himself. He would add his signature at the bottom. Here, Tertius probably with Paul's permission, adds his greeting. He says, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church greets you. Apparently Paul had stayed and the church had met in Corinth there in the house of a man named Gaius. And Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. Obviously a dignitary there in Corinth, a high-ranking public official, had embraced the gospel of Jesus. And Quartus, a brother. Now this is really interesting. The names Tertius and Quartus are actually Greek numbers. They're the numbers 3 and 4. In the Roman world, oftentimes, slaves were never given proper names. They were just given numerals. It's possible that these two believers, these two brothers, Tertius and Quartus, were former slaves but they were now considered brothers and co-laborers with Paul. Notice on the one hand, we have Erastus, the treasurer of the city, a great public official. On the other hand, we have Quartus and we have Tertius, but Paul treats them both the same. They're beloved brothers. Never underestimate the revolutionary social impact Christianity had on the ancient world. It abolished slavery by wiping out the distinction between nobleman and slave. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We're all equals in Christ. And then Paul closes his greetings. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And he adds a benediction. 
Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Notice, Jesus is able to establish us. Not just to save us, but to keep us saved. To establish us in Christ for all eternity. His gospel, remember, is overpowering. It bulldozes sins and it buries doubts and it packs a firm footing on which we can stand for all eternity. Once a, a street person, old wino, he approached D.L. Moody after a meeting. He was drunk as a skunk. He shouted, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your first converts. <laughs> Moody replied, you must be one of my converts because you sure don't look like you were converted by the Lord. Hey, Jesus causes us to stand strong, not flounder away. The gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ is according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And with that final flurry, Paul concludes his letter to the Romans.